All right. Well, if you have your bulletin and your outline, I'm going to invite you to take that out. If you looked at the bulletin cover, you see that we are in uh, a series here that we started last week. And so today is the second part of that series. One more next week called Answers. And today we are going to try and tackle one of the toughest questions that any human could ever face. It's probably a question that you have asked. It's a question that has probably been asked of you as well. That is, why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering? And today as we talk about that and hope to get some answers... Um, I pray that you will listen with the understanding, not necessarily to be able to leave here and go out and say, okay, I got it, I, I, I have my answer and all that, I know why bad things happen, and even, you know, the next person who asks me, I'm just going to kind of blow them over and give them those words. That's not my desire here. My desire here is that you would hear what the Bible has to say about the evil things that happen in the world, the suffering that happens in the world, and... Um, you will take comfort from that, and you'll be able to give comfort in that. I I don't believe that all people who ask that question necessarily are ready to receive that answer. In fact, sometimes they just need you to be with them. Sometimes they just need you to hug them. Sometimes they, they just need you to pray with them. But when people do truly search that out, that you'll have a greater understanding of why evil things happen in the world and what we can do with that. What are our steps in the midst of that? We've all heard those questions. In fact, case in point, um, about two or three weeks ago when I shared a message on evangelism and was encouraging you all to, to share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, one person left the service and that next day at work talked with a friend about coming to church. And as they talked a little bit about whether they would come to church or not, it, it came out that the person said, you know, I, I'm really kind of still holding something against God. And it came out that their child had died when it was still a newborn. And it was something that had haunted this family for years and years and years and years. And they asked the question to the person who invited them to First Baptist. They said, um, why would God allow that to happen in my life? Joe Ehrmans is a uh, NFL defensive, former NFL defensive lineman who came and spoke at our leadership prayer breakfast at UOP in the Spano Center a couple of weeks ago. He was on the front page of the record the next morning, and his story was written up in the record story. Let me read some of it. As I said, he's a former defensive lineman, was an All-American at Syracuse University when he was in college, but he said when he was 29 years of age, playing for the Baltimore Colts at this time, his 18-year-old brother died of cancer. He said, I was devastated. In fact, he spent a whole year practicing and playing games and then on his off times going and sitting beside his brother, holding his hand as he was dying. He said, I was devastated. I was losing the one person I love most in life. He said, nothing I had invested in offered any hope at that time. He said, the experience of burying my brother was a turning point, though, in my life. The mourners who walked away from his casket, as they did so, I turned around and I said, is this it 
is this the meaning of life? He said, I had no concept about what life was about. And that began my journey as I asked God, why? Why? If you've seen the movie, God's Not Dead, you'll know that uh, some of the uh, plot line of the story is that a professor is challenged by one of his students that God does exist. The professor's an atheist. The student steps up and kind of tries to refute that in class. The professor challenges him to prove it. Over the course of the movie, as the professor and the student are in dialogue, we learn that the professor is an atheist because he can't come to reason why God, a loving God, and if a God does exist, why he would have taken away his mother from him when he was just 11 years of age. In fact, the professor admits at one point in the movie, yes, I hate God for doing that to me. A young gal stopped me in the lobby about three weeks ago. Again, it was after one of the evangelism messages that I had shared. She's a Christian, identified her as that. I know who she is. She said, how am I supposed to share my faith about God when I'm angry at God, when I'm disappointed in what God has allowed to happen to my family? And as we talked a little bit more about her story, she had said a recent family tragedy had really shaken up her faith. And she said, why would God allow that to happen to me? Probably every one of us has asked that question or a question very similar because either we or a good friend have gone through some types of some similar experiences. So as I said last week, I think we need to tackle this question. I think we need to find some answers. And I'm praying that these answers are not for me, but these pray, I'm praying these answers you'll see are from God's word. And they give us a little bit more to go on when we are faced with that tough question. When either it comes up from ourselves or someone talking to us about it. But the question goes like this. In fact, you see it on your outline. So if you pull it out, I identified it as the big problem. It goes like this. If God is all-powerful, and if God is all-loving, then how can suffering exist? If God is all-powerful, and God is all-loving, why is there evil? Why is there suffering in the world? I mean, many of us, when we come to that place, we feel, God, I've been, I've been wrong. Set things right. Do something about this. <clears throat> it's a good question. In fact, it's a very good question. It's uh, such a good question that even people in the Bible were asking God about it. I don't know if you knew that or not, but, but the Bible has some tough questions. The Bible has people in there who go through doubts, who go through struggles, who go through different difficult situations. Job would be the epitome of this. And this is not a message on Job. We, could, we can kind of look at this from a little different angle if we looked at Job's life and all that he went through. But look at the question that Job asked in Job chapter 19, verse 7. It says, Behold, I cry out, violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. What the psalmist says in Psalm 10, verse 1. 
It says, why, O Lord, do, I stand, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In fact, the psalmist goes on to say in Psalm 22, verse 1, and these are words that Jesus later said, as this was a forecast of what he would say, the psalmist says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do I feel that? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now, if you're struggling with this question, book of Psalms, that, that, that's got every emotion in it. From elation to dejection to, to utter despair. Read through the Psalms. They don't hide it. But let me say this as we kind of enter into this subject. And let me clarify just something about the problem with suffering and evil. I think God gets a little bit of a bad rap for some of our stuff. From some of our junk that maybe we have put ourselves in. See, as I see evil and suffering, I I think it usually fits into a couple different categories. It usually fits into the categories of our fault and God's fault. And so when we go through something, many times, maybe subconsciously or not, we say, okay, well, maybe that was my fault. Maybe it was God's fault. We usually kind of throw it over here into God's fault kind of category. Let, Let me illustrate it. Let's say this afternoon, uh, the weather kind of clears up, and uh, you want to go out on a lake in a boat. And so you decide to go up, let's just say, to Lodi Lake, and you decide to go out there on a little boat. You rent it all by yourself, and you're sitting out in that boat, and maybe you're fishing, or I don't know if you can fish in Lodi Lake. I don't know what you're doing out there, but you're out on the boat, all right? And then all of a sudden, this storm comes in. And this squall and the wind starts to blow, and it starts to blow so much that there's actually waves there on Lodi Lake. And the waves get so big and they get almost like the ocean that they actually capsize your boat. You're in the water. You're so, and you look up. You say, okay, God, why did that have to happen? You would probably put that into the category of God's fault. You thought it was going to be a beautiful day, but nature came and changed something. Who's in control of nature? God's in control of nature. God, you caused that to happen. Okay, I'll allow that. Let's say, however, that you go out in that same boat, same beautiful day, the weather does not turn angry, but you decide to stand up in that boat. You don't only stand up in that boat, however, you stand up and begin to rock that boat. You don't only stand up and rock that boat, but you rock it big, and you end up where? In the water. Same result. But now we say... All right, I can see how that would have been my fault. I did that to myself. Well, the evil that happens in this world can often fit in those two categories. Like I said, subconsciously or not, we may place it in one of those two categories. And so let me just give you some for instance. Back in the mid-80s when the space shuttle blew up, I think it was Space Shuttle Challenger blew up, many people were asking God, why? Why did that happen? In fact, most people probably started to put it into this God's fault category because as the space shuttle was launching up, it exploded in the skies and many people saw it live on television. As months went on and an investigation was done, however, they discovered that, remember the problem was? An O-ring was not installed properly into the space shuttle. 
causing heat to expand and explosion and the explosion to come about. And so over time and with perspective, we can see that really was, again, our fault from someone's human error. Let's go to another situation. The Boston Marathon bombings that happened just a year ago this past week. This week, we saw people again in the marathon and trying to kind of recover and recoup and bring back a joyfulness to that event. But remembering the bombings that happened last year, again, beginning of it, why? Why did that have to happen? Well, we can see it really was our fault, humans' fault, because a couple of people got some strange ideas to place a bomb near the finish line and cause an explosion to happen. Okay, we'll put that over into the category of that's our fault. What about a car a car wreck comes about because maybe someone is careless or maybe they slide off the road or maybe someone's impaired in the driving, maybe they've been drinking and driving, but for two huge masses of metal to crash together, man-made masses of metal to crash together, we'd have to say again, that's our fault. We've created those cars. Human error often leads to a car crash. That'd be our fault. Let me give you one more. What about lung cancer? Probably you've known someone who's passed away from lung cancer. Could be a parent, could be a grandparent of yours. You say, well, you know what? They spent a lot of years smoking or we live in a place where we get smog and all that type of thing. It leads to lung cancer. Okay, yep, that would be our fault. But what about other things that seem to be God's fault? What about when a baby is born with a birth defect? What about when it's born without an arm or no hand or no foot or no leg or just one eye? We look at that and we say, God, how can that happen? God, we place that in the category of saying, God, that's your fault. You created that baby inside the womb. It didn't do anything to deserve that. God, why did you cause that to happen that way? Or what about drought and starvation? And I'm not just talking about like a drought here in the year that we're having this year, but, but let's talk about in Africa and Ethiopia where people live and food doesn't grow and rain doesn't fall. God, why do you have people live there and born there, born in that type of thing? God, that would be your fault. Or how about one more? What about a tornado that comes by? Or an earthquake that strikes? I mean, insurance company, call it accident. God, God, that would be your fault. Or would it? See, let's go back to the original equation. The original equation is, if God is all-powerful, and God is all-loving, then how can suffering exist? Harold Kushner is a Jewish rabbi who wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I read the book in seminary. This Jewish rabbi did something interesting with that equation. He came to the conclusion that God is not all-powerful. He came to the conclusion that, yes, God, I know you're all-loving, but God, you you are not all-powerful because if you were all-powerful, you wouldn't allow these things to happen. And I read it, when I just started seminary. And then I put it away for a couple of months. Got busy doing some other things, was into other work and such, and I can remember thinking over the course of that two months, maybe he's right. Maybe God is not all-powerful. Maybe God can't stop this, and why, that's why bad things happen, because I know God's loving, but maybe he's not all-powerful. 
And then I remember the day when I came to the conclusion that I don't want to believe that because that would scare me more than knowing that the God I serve is all-powerful. So God, that's not what I believe. And I had to go down to the, God, are you all-loving? And if you are, then why do you choose who dies? And why do you choose who's stricken with some sort of disease? And God, it feels like you're kind of just playing that with, with us down here on earth. It's a tough question. It's a hard question. And yet it's a question I want again to go to Scripture to see what the Bible says about this. And so again, if you have your outline, I wrote some verses there. You can have your Bibles open, but we're going to be jumping all over Scripture passages. Let me give you the Bible's answer, though, for why evil and suffering happens in the world. First point that you can fill in is this. The world was created perfect with no suffering. That's the story we receive in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we see the whole Garden of Eden story. It says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very what? It was very good. Not just good, but very good. So there was no evil, no suffering going on. But with this relationship then, as God created Adam and Eve, this perfect relationship that they have, God allowed them to have a free will, to choose whether they wanted to love God back. Because God didn't want to just make them into robots. God didn't want them to just be, you know, demanding that they love him and that he just says, well, worship me, and so they worship him. For love to be loved. It has to be freely given. It has to be freely accepted. What kind of love would it be if you were just a robot just worshiping because you had to? But introduced with that free will came choice. And with that choice, the next feeling I wrote there, with that choice, humanity chose rebellion against God. That's what Genesis teaches us, that humanity chose rebellion against God. And so we see here in Genesis chapter 2, where the story is written out that God says, you're not to eat of that tree of good and evil. Don't go near it. Don't eat of it. But in verses, uh, or Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, here's what it says. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he also ate. So as a result, again, the next fill-in, not just humanity, but nature. Nature itself was altered. As a result of sin that happened in the Garden of Eden, all of nature was altered. Now, let me give you kind of an illustration of this. Let's say we fast forward some 800 and some odd years into the year 2870. And let's say you are alive at that time and you live, or maybe your grandchildren are alive at that time, whatever it may be, because you're really old at that point, right? Let's say your grandchildren are alive, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, and they live in a land called Chernobyl, in a forest called Chernobyl. And in this land, there's a lot of cancer. And in this land, there's a lot of birth defects. And in this land, there's great amounts of starvation because food does not grow in this land. And people now are saying, why, God? 
why are you doing this to people? Why are you causing the cancer? Why are you causing the starvation? Why are you causing the birth defects in people as they are born, and little children as they are born? And you could probably put on the chart of our fault, God's fault, of all those things being God's fault. That people live in this land and all these things are happening because God is doing it to them. But with a little perspective, you can see that it's really not God's fault. Because if you remember back to 1986, you remember what happened in Chernobyl? There was a huge nuclear reactor that exploded, wasn't there? And in 1987, there started to be people who were born with birth defects. There started to be people who had cancer. There started to be much starvation because no ground would produce food that was able to be eaten. In 1987, people remember that. In 1988, people remember that. In 1992, people remember that. In 1999, people remember that. In the year 2003, maybe they're starting to forget it. In the year 2004, only probably half of you even remember what that is, but in the year 2870, nobody remembers it. And so people begin to think, God, why are you doing this to us? Why are you causing babies to be born with birth defects and three arms and two heads and one? Why, why, why? When with a little perspective, we just go back and we see, thank God who did that. It was human error, our fault, who caused that radiation to go off and create that kind of a society in which we live. But over time, we forget. And we don't put that on ourselves. We put that back on God. Well, what happened in the Garden of Eden set off an explosion that we now live in. And we live in the fallout of that sin. We live in a fallout from a sin bomb that went off. It happened thousands of years ago. It's recorded in scripture. We live in that fallout. God didn't cause that. Who caused it? We did. You say, well, I didn't cause that. Yes, each of us did. In fact, scripture says this in Romans chapter 5 verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who was that man? Adam, represented by Adam and Eve. And death through that sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But, and this is the good news, just as sin entered the world through one man, so did eternal life. And Paul tells us this a little bit later in Romans chapter 5. He says this in verse 18, where he says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In other words, Jesus came into the world, canceled out that sin that Adam and Eve originally did and that we have been doing all along. Jesus became the sin sponge on the cross that took all the consequences of that sin. He took them upon himself. Now that's the good news, amen? We talk about that next week. Why is Jesus so powerful in all this? Why is Jesus so important in the story of humankind and our way to God the Father and to heaven? But today we're still talking about the suffering. We're still talking about what we experience when we're in the midst of it. Well, here's how the story ends. This is what Jesus allows us to work towards. The story ends in that all suffering in the world will one day be eliminated by God. 
One day, all the suffering goes away. There will be a cosmic do-over. Remember do-overs on the playground? Remember that? Four square? No, I'm out. No, you're out. No, I'm out. Oh, do it over, right? Everybody's happy. Do it over. There will be a cosmic do-over. And God will set all things right. And a perfect world will be recreated. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the former things has now passed away. Chapter 22, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. There'll be no more curse on the ground, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So the world will be recreated. The world will be right again. The world will be good. And those of you who have aches and pains, those of you who are in wheelchairs, those of you who have children who are suffering, those of you who have pain in your own body, those of you who experience the hurt and the loss, it'll all all be done away with. Life will be different. Life will, will enjoy this earth as God originally intended for it to be enjoyed. And life will be set back in order. And then we'll enjoy God forever. To come. I don't know if it comes in an hour. I don't know if it comes in a year, in a decade, in a millennia. I don't know. We don't know. But that's to come. But we ask the question, what does that mean to me now? I mean, how does this get me through the loneliness and the hurt and the pain and the suffering of the here and the now? And I know many of your stories. Some of you know my story. We all experience it. We all have it. We see how it began in Genesis. We see how it's going to end in Revelation. But we're living it now. What do we do in the midst of that? How does this help me when my mother is still dying of cancer? How does this help me when my child was just born with Down syndrome? When When I feel like I have to drink because I can't deal with my hurt. When I've just fallen into temptation for the umpteenth time and I feel so embarrassed because I'm going there again. When I long for someone just to be a best friend to me. When a good friend is killed by a drunk driver. What does that mean for me now? That's a question we lend into. That's a question now we walk into. Because we've, we've seen kind of some of the heady answers. We've seen what the Bible says about it. We've seen maybe rationally we can go there and say, okay, I can see that, I can see that, I can understand that. But we still live in it. C.S. Lewis uh, was not a Christian for much of his life. And then he came to a point of being challenged by some friends and opening God's word and seeing that Jesus Christ is truly who he said he was and is. Gave his life to Christ became a theologian and a prominent Christian writer. Many of you know him from the Chronicles of Narnia, kind of those fable, those parables of, 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 of life and how life is to be lived and will end up in the, in the years to come. He wrote two interesting books that I've read. The first one is called uh, The Problem with Pain. And in this first book, he gives us God's answers and his answers to why there's evil and suffering in the world. And he goes through and he kind of tracks and he says, well, you know, original sin and free will and free choice and what Adam and Eve did and how that lends to what's going on today. And he's got it all mapped out there. 
And I read that first book and I said, yeah, you know what? That's, that's true. That, that, that's, that's truth. Saying some good things. He had it all kind of laid out and answered. But then his wife got cancer. And he watched her die an excruciating death. And so he wrote a second book. And that book was called A Grief Observed. In which it's not as though he refuted the answers that he had all written out and had figured out. But now he wrote from his heart. Now he wrote from a place of pain. Now he wrote from a place of suffering. Now he wrote from a place of saying, okay, God, it's not about my head knowledge, but it's about my heart. And I'm hurting. I'm feeling it. I'm in the midst of this. But God, I still know you're there. You're there when I experience this pain. And so I know some of you are still going through that right now. Some may be in that place where, hey, let's put it into the head knowledge. I can figure it out. We got the problem all solved. Some of you are, fearing, are, are in that place though, of saying, nope, I hurt. And so what I want to do for the remainder of the time is just give us some of God's practical advice, some of his truths that I hope will walk us through living out our lives in the midst of that. In fact, it's on the back of your outline, and it says three truths that God wants you to know in tough times. Here's the first. We live in a broken world. We've talked about that. We live in a broken world. In fact, that is a promise to you, that you live in a broken world. Jesus said that in John 16, where it says, in this world, you will have trouble. Okay? It doesn't say, in this world, you will earn trouble. It doesn't say, in this world, you will imagine there to be trouble. It doesn't say, in this world, you will have trouble until you are saved and know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then everything's okay. It says, in this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise, and yet it's probably not up on the wall in your office or in your bedroom, right? That verse, in this world, you'll have trouble? Probably not. Mine, mine either. The good news is, we'll talk about this more next week, Jesus finishes that verse by saying, but I have overcome the world. Yet we still live in the world. And in that world, we have trouble. And so in the midst of that trouble, we need to just remember that, yes, we live in a broken world, but, uh, but we don't live for a broken God. Broken world, yes. Broken God, no. In fact, let me illustrate that. Philip Yancey is a Christian author who wrote a great book that I've also read. I would encourage you to read that if your faith is strong, because it's a difficult read, but it's called Disappointment with God. And in it, he writes, you know, I decided to interview the one person that I knew whose life most resembled Job, the suffering that Job went. It was a man by the name of Douglas. He said Douglas had trained in psychotherapy for years, but he, des- he uh, declined a lucrative um, career uh, in psychotherapy and instead decided to start up a poor-paying urban ministry. And Philip writes, you know, my good friend, I would have thought if anybody would be rewarded by God for doing that, it would be him. But Douglas's troubles were numerous. They began when his wife discovered that she had a lump in her breast. The breast had to be removed from the cancer that had already spread to the lungs. And she went through chemotherapy and lost all of her hair. And uh, one day as Douglas and his wife and daughter were traveling in their car, Douglas was driving and had to swerve to miss a drunk driver. He ended up going into a ditch 
and a car turned over, and he took the worst of the blows. His wife hardly had a scratch. His daughter had a few broken bones, but Douglas ended up having brain damage. In fact, brain damage that made him incapacitated uh, for many, many weeks, often had headaches, daily headaches. One eye would wander at will, not be focused. Uh, The vision in the other eye was impaired. He couldn't walk downstairs without assistance. He couldn't read anymore. He couldn't study anymore. He couldn't work anymore. And as his friend, Philip Yancey, came to him and he said, "Uh, what have you learned that might help someone else going through suffering? As that question was posed to Douglas, Douglas stood silent for a long time. And he said this. He said, don't confuse God with life. He paused longer. In fact, Philip Yancey thought that he was having another one of those mental lapses. But then he came to and he said this. He said, I don't really feel any disappointment in God, just in life. And I would say, don't confuse God with life. In fact, you can fill that in in your outline so that you can remember that. Don't confuse God with life in this broken world. Feel free to curse the unfairness of life. Feel free to vent your anger and your grief. But I don't feel, or I don't believe, God feels the same way about that accident. In fact, Douglas went on. He says, we tend to think life should be fair because we think God's fair. But God is not life. And if I confuse God with life by expecting constant good health, for example, I set myself up for a crashing disappointment. He says, don't confuse God with life. And you understand what he's saying there? He's saying if a friend has cancer, it doesn't mean God's injecting cancer into those bones. It doesn't mean God's pulling the trigger from a murderer's weapon. It doesn't mean God's setting off the bomb because somebody wants to do that. It doesn't mean that God's setting the fires for arsonists. We live in a broken world, and in a broken world, stuff happens. But God will set things right. Like you can fill that back in as well. It says God will set things right. One day, one day, God will set things right how they were intended to be. It says in Acts 17, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. In one day, God will set the world back how it was supposed to be. And so God's promise and God's truth to us in the midst of that is that you can find comfort in God now. You can find that comfort in God now. That's the next feeling that's on the outline. You can find comfort in God, not just later, but now. Psalm 119, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise. Do you know what one of those promises is? One of those promises comes from Hebrews 13, 5 that says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So even though we go through those difficult times, God has promised to go through them with us. God has promised to be our comfort in the midst of those times of struggle and of trial and of difficulties. And so as we look at life, let me me kind of explain it in this way. Your choice in life is is never life with trouble or life without trouble. 
Even though sometimes in church or in Sunday school, we may think that that's what is being taught to us, that, hey, you know what, you receive Christ, and then your life is all trouble-free. No, 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 it's not a choice of life with trouble or life without trouble. The choice is this. Your choice in life is life with trouble with God or life with trouble without God. That's the choice. You are going to have trouble in life. Jesus says we're going to have trouble. But it's our choice, whether we experience that with God or whether we experience that without God. And a biblical perspective would be for us to view God walking us through that trouble. And in every situation, he is working that out for our good. Not that all those situations are good, but he is working out those situations for his good. In fact, that comes out of a promise of Romans 8, 28. Let me read that to you. It says, we know that in, for those who love God, all things work together for what? For good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there's a couple of qualifiers in there. You do need to love God. And when you love God, when you're one of his children, then he's taking the things that happen to us, the evil, the suffering, the pain, the hardships, the difficulties, and he is working those out for our good. Note, though, it's not saying those things are good. Please don't hear that. The suffering, the pain, the sickness that some of you are going through right now or family members are going through, that's not good. But God is working those out for the good. For those of you who love him. And are called according to his purpose. In fact, I often like to kind of compare it to baking a cake. Where the ingredients are kind of put into the mixing bowl. And when the flour is put into the mixing bowl, you wouldn't want to eat that by itself. It doesn't taste good. But then you put some eggs in that mixing bowl. You wouldn't want to taste the eggs by itself. It wouldn't taste good. But then the vanilla is put in there. Then the sugar is put in there. You wouldn't want to taste the sugar. Well, maybe the sugar would be okay to eat by itself. But you know what I mean. All those things by himself are not good, but when you put in the milk, when you put in the water, whatever it may be, mixes together. God is in the midst of all that, and we don't always see that individually as it's coming our way, but God is in the midst of all that. He is working those things out for good. I do not believe he is causing those things to happen to us, but he's working through those things for those of us who love him and are called according to his purpose. And today, that might just be what you hold on to. To say, God, I know it's difficult. I know I struggle. I know I question you at times. But I'm going to hold on to your promise that you are still working this out for good. In fact, there's a great song out right now by Laura Story, who's a Christian singer and songwriter, who wrote the song Blessings, who is dealing with this very same uh, issue. Her husband developed a brain tumor a number of years ago that to this day, and they're still struggling with this, affects his speech and his motor skills. And I watched her testimony online. She was just at a little church, and she was ministering to them, and she was setting up the song. She was talking about the song of why she wrote the song, and she used the equation that we used at the very beginning. She said, you know, I've struggled with this question. If God is an all-powerful God, and God is an all-loving God, then why does my husband Marty have this difficulty going on in his life? Why does he have this brain tumor? They're they're still dealing with this. But then she said, I'm I'm holding on to this verse in Romans 8, 28 that draws her back saying, God, you have a bigger perspective on this. God, uh, you are going to use this for your good. And God, maybe even in the midst of this, 
I'll be able to call it a blessing. In fact, um, I asked Krista Mendoza to come and sing that song for us that Laura's story has written. If you were at our worship night a number of months ago, you would have heard Kristen sing that song. And it's a song that I think perfectly captures the theme of the message that I'm sharing today. Because we don't always see where God is working, but we can know that he is.